This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Uh, Wait, you're listening. Okay. All right. You're listening listening to Radio Lab. Radio Lab. From WNYC. Okay, hey, I'm Jad Abumrad. This is Radio Lab. Dispatch number two. This is a story that we're all living out 20, 30, 50 times a day in 20 second bursts. It's a story I didn't even really know about, but. When this whole corona crisis was new, just, I mean, it seems like it's been years, but just two weeks ago, one of the first people I called was... Mr. Adam Rod. Mr. Zimmer. Oh, it's good to hear your voice. Was Carl Zimmer. He's a science writer, regular guest on the show. How are you doing? Everyone okay? Yeah, you know, we sort of like, you know, just fluctuate, you know. Yeah. Call him up because I just wanted to get a basic read on what science we should be paying attention to and covering. So I was asking him questions about vaccines and treatments. Um, hold on a second. There were many parenting interruptions. I assume you washed your hands? Yeah. All right. I know. Roll your eyes. Roll your eyes. This is what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Anyhow, we were talking about the science, and in the flow of things, he throws out this name. Ignaz Semmelweis. I found I found a profile of Ignaz Semmelweis, and I just sort of put it on a tweet, and I said, you know, every day is Ignaz Semmelweis Day. <laughs> you know, like who's this? Ignaz Semmelweis. You know, just a whole, a whole epic story. No, what you is know? this? What is this epic story? <laughs> I mean, and then he told me this crazy story of a two thousand year old medical mystery that involves life and death and dogma and disease and sacrifice and the price of knowledge. And I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. Get a USB mic. I'm going to call you back. Okay, just from the start. Yeah, so so who, who is Ignis Semmelweis? So um, Semmelweis was born in 1818 um, to a, a family, ran grocery stores in Budapest and Hungary. He was the fifth of nine kids. And he was, you know, they... You you hear these words described about him, you know, um, a lighthearted guy, popular, jocular, seemed like a very pleasant man. At least at the beginning. Uh, when you look at his face from the earliest photographs we have, he, he looks very intense. This is Nancy Tomes, historian of medicine at Stony Brook University. Dark hair, dark mustache. He, to my mind, must have cut a fine figure as a doctor with that impressive face and those haunting eyes. It is true, he has a very smiley mouth in those early pictures, but his eyes are like searchlights. But in any case, um, Semmelweis 
At first, he thought he'd become a lawyer, but uh, then he switched to, to medicine. He just had a really good medical class, I guess, in at university, and decided that's what I want to do. And so he uh, then traveled to Vienna because he wanted to go to the best medical school he could, uh, and he uh, started work there. Okay, so Vienna Hospital. This is where the mystery unfolds. Can you just sort of set the scene? Uh, Teji, uh, I'm I'm on an interview. Oh, that's beautiful. I'm in an interview right now, babe. Can you can you? Uh, what, what is your password? Uh, it's uh, it's uh, sorry, Carl. It's uh, ask mom to type it, right? That's just parenting in the pandemic. Okay, so Vienna Hospital, set the scene. Um, we should be picturing the Vienna General Hospital around 1846. Okay. This is a magnificent hospital. Vienna is is one of the intellectual centers of the world. Um, this may be one of the greatest hospitals on earth. Its professors are revered as holding all the wisdom of of medical lore. And by the way, this is a moment when science itself, at least as we understand it now, was just getting going. Yes. Data, empiricism. Observation. Statistics. One of the big changes in the history of science coming about, uh, moving from the, the old to the new, was simply using your eyes and paying attention. So you had all these young doctors like Semmelweis come into this hospital with the idea that we're going to embrace this new era. The body contains all of these secrets. And in order to learn those secrets, we've got to look inside. We've got to do dissections, see what it can teach us so that we can understand how disease affects organs so that we can then learn how to treat them in living people. Okay. So, and so Semmelweis... Arrives in Vienna, 1844. You know, he's kicked around a bit at the medical school trying to figure out what his specialty would be. Did a lot of uh, autopsies uh, to learn about medicine. And then uh, he was assigned to obstetrics. The delivering of babies. And so Iggy's routine became that uh, he, in the morning, he would dissect bodies as part of his training. And then in the afternoon and evening, he would deliver babies. So he, he got, to, uh, got to become an expert on, on childbirth. One thing to keep in mind. At, at this point, women did not go to hospitals to give birth routinely in this time period. The women who went there were so poor that they needed the assistance. Nancy says if you were a woman during this time and you had any means at all. You gave birth at home. And in fact, many of the women giving birth in these maternity clinics, not just in Vienna, but in other big cities, might be single women who had become pregnant, they might be prostitutes, and they would exchange that care during labor for the right of the medical personnel to use them as teaching material. So it was a teaching hospital. But not all of the hospital was for teaching. Uh, there were, this becomes important later. There were two uh, delivery wards in this hospital. One was run by female midwives. The other was run by male doctors. So okay. the division with the doctors, the first division was, you know, the very high status one. You know, where they were advancing the science. Combining what they were learning with autopsies, with, you know, doing childbirth. This is where our guy, Ignis Semmelweis, trained. And we can imagine in those first few years, he delivered thousands of babies. And very early on, he was struck by a horrible fact. Many of the young women who gave birth in his delivery ward died right after they delivered. 
he was really haunted by all these women who were dying in front of him. I mean, it really uh, got to him. It hit him very hard. And uh, and it was just relentless. You know, and just, just a large number of these healthy young women would come to the hospital to give birth and then suddenly die in, in one of the most horrific ways you can imagine. They'd give birth, then develop a fever. That fever would keep climbing until they were hallucinating, convulsing, filling with bile, losing blood, and then ultimately passing away. He writes about how much this haunted him because, you know, every time that there was another patient who was dying, they would call the priest. And every time a priest would come into the hospital, they'd ring a bell. It had a strange effect upon my nerves when I heard the bell hurried past my door. A sigh would escape my heart for the victim that once more was claimed by an unknown power. Yeah, so every time he heard that bell, it just it just made him shudder. The bell was a painful exhortation to me to search for this unknown cause with all of my might. Because he, he knew that they were losing another young woman. That unknown power that was claiming all these lives was a disease with a strange name. Purple fever. Purple fever. Purple fever. It's not purple, as in the color. It's purpural fever, which comes from the Latin purpura, which means woman who gives birth. At that point, it was sometimes called childbed fever, but it went back a long way. It, it had been described for thousands of years. I mean, Hippocrates actually describes it. If, however, the purgation of the purpurium does not take place. Even in the 5th century BC, Hippocrates, father of medicine, described the fevers, described the symptoms. He thought something had putrefied in the mother. Yes. Other physicians? Cold air inadvertently received into the uterus, which closes the orifices of the vessels. Thought maybe it was the air in the delivery room. In the period, it is widely accepted that the qualities of the air... Uh, play a role in determining disease. This is Daniel Margosi, historian of science, Cambridge University. Oh, Some people argue that there is seasonal variation in the number of women being afflicted. In other words, maybe it was the weather. Some people argued it was the moral standing of the women. Because if you are immoral, you tend to be dirty. If you are dirty, both morally and uh, physically, uh, then you live in squalid conditions. All kinds of crazy theories. Some people even thought that um, the problem was that the milk that expectant mothers were producing to nurse their children was somehow getting routed into their abdomen or their uterus. And oh, in, wow. <laughs> in a weird way, you can kind of see how they could think of something as crazy as that. And that's because when doctors would examine these dead mothers, open up their abdomens, they saw this huge amount of pale liquid that looked to them a little like milk. But it was pus. That is legitimately disgusting. But the point is, this mystery had been plaguing doctors and scientists for thousands of years. And it just so happened that when Ignaz Semmelweis was in delivery ward number one, it was a really big problem. You know, sometimes 30% of the, of the women giving birth at the hospital in a month die of this fever. That is a huge number. Huge. I mean, it, it would fluctuate, you know, in some months it would be 7%, but still, you know, so everybody knew that this was a problem. Um, and so 
the question was, well, what's causing this and how can we address it? I imagine that every time he heard that bell, Ignaz Semmelweis thought, I have got to get to the bottom of this. And so, in between his morning dissections and his afternoon delivery shifts, he would visit the hospital archives. The Vienna General Hospital might not have understood what purple fever was, but they were really good at keeping records. So he looked at their records, Hmm. and some things really popped out for him. First of all, despite a general impression to the contrary, neither the incidents nor the mortality of purple fever was related to weather. You know, there was no connection with weather. Cross that off the list. You know, you could rule things out. But here was the really big thing he noticed. Observation number one. If you remember, there were two different delivery wards. The same number of deliveries took place in each of the hospital's two obstetrical divisions, usually between 3,000 and 3,500. Division number one were doctors. Number two were midwives. In the first division, an average of 600 to 800 mothers died each year from purple fever. In the second division, the figure was usually about 60 deaths. Semmelweis, like, runs the numbers, and he's like, my God, like... 20% of of these women are dying where the doctors are in charge, and about 2% are dying when the midwives are in charge. Really? Yeah. So the death rate is 18% higher when the doctors are delivering the babies? 10 times higher. Think of it that way. About 10 times bigger risk of dying when, you know, some of the best doctors in the world are delivering your baby. Naturally, Ignaz was like, why would that be? Why would it be so different? He was just looking and looking and looking, like, what could explain this? What could explain this? Shortly after, he has this big aha moment and solves the 2,000-year-old mystery. That's after the break. Hi, my name is Rayanne, and I'm calling from Cookstown, Pennsylvania. Radiolab is supported in part by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science and technology in the modern world. More information about Sloan at www.sloan.org. Radio Lab is supported by Betterment. Let's talk about you and your money. You like your free time. You like to relax every now and then. You like to feel totally chill. But your money, your money likes to work. And Betterment is the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. While you're catching up on sleep, your money is up early, earning 11 times the national average in a high-yield cash account. Your money is a multitasker, diversified in expert-built portfolios of low-cost ETFs. And your money is optimized with automated tax-efficient strategies, just like the pros use. Your money is a total workhorse, so you don't have to be. Because you've got Betterment, the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. Visit Betterment.com to get started. Learn more about high-yield cash accounts at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk, performance not guaranteed, cash reserve offered through Betterment LLC and Betterment Securities. Betterment is not a bank. There's a lot going on right now. Mounting economic inequality, threats to democracy, environmental disaster, the sour stench of chaos in the air. I'm Brooke Gladstone, host of WNYC's On the Media. Want to understand the reasons and the meanings of the narratives that led us here? And maybe how to head them off at the pass? That's On the Media's specialty. Take a listen wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jad Abumrad. This is Radiolab. So it is 1847. Iggy Semmelweis is flummoxed. He's noticed a very distressing pattern that uh, 
you know, there are two delivery wards in the hospital, Division One. You have the best and the brightest male doctors in the world delivering babies. Division Two. you have female midwives. He runs the numbers and finds that women giving birth in his delivery room, Division One, die at 10 times higher the rate than Division Two. And he has no idea why this would be. These are supposed to be the best doctors in the world. But then he has an aha moment. What re- seems to really have made it all click in place was not uh, the death of one of these patients, but the death of one of his professors. A man named Jacob Kolechka. He had this mentor who had taught him about um, medicine and how to do an autopsy, how to do forensic pathology, all that stuff. And um, during one autopsy, uh, this professor was with a student. He and the student were bent over a cadaver. And the student was, you know, cutting open a cadaver under his guidance. Making some incisions. And then just accidentally nicked him with the knife. Nicked the professor? Yes. Apparently the student's hand slipped or something, and he caught his professor on the finger. So the student nicks the professor with the knife, just a tiny little scrape. Um, And then um, suddenly... Within a few days, his mentor... He dies a terrible death. But a terrible death that seemed familiar. Totally shattered, I brooded over the case with intense emotion until suddenly a thought crossed my mind. At once it became clear to me that childbed fever, the fatal sickness of newborn, and the disease of Professor Kolechka were one and the same. He realized, oh my God, this disease is the same one I've been seeing in the delivery room. With the mothers, we didn't know why it was happening. But here we know the cause. It was the student, the student's knife. A knife that first had been in a dead body and then had cut the professor's finger. The fact of the matter is that the transmitting source of those cadaver particles was to be found in the hands of the students and intending physicians. When that professor Mm. died, it all clicked into place because what do these doctors do? These doctors, in the morning, might have their hands deep in a cadaver. And in the afternoon, they would walk over to a pregnant woman and start delivering a baby with the same hands. Oh, that's haunting. So they're literally carrying death into the place where life begins. Yes, they were. They absolutely were. And and so, I mean, the way that Semmelweis described it was that um, when a doctor was finished with an autopsy, he had cadaver particles on his hands. Oh. So Semmelweis called these cadaver particles. Oh, that gives me chills just thinking about that. He, he didn't call them bacteria or viruses or anything. He didn't know what those things were. And when he put all this stuff together and came up with this idea of cadaver particles, he thought, oh my God, because of my convictions, I must here confess that God only knows the number of patients who have gone to their graves prematurely by my fault. I have been sending women to their graves. He immediately recognized the brutal paradox of his situation. He'd been trying to do the right thing. Advance the science, save lives. But it had done the opposite. 
In fact, the doctor who worked at the delivery ward right before he got there, who was widely recognized as a lazy scientist, didn't do dissections. And as a consequence, more women survived. Semmelweis shows up, starts doing dissections as he believed was his duty, and the deaths spike. Semmelweis is very much aware of that paradox, that it's with the rise of scientific medicine that childhood fever is really coming into place. And he basically says that, you know, me being a conscientious scientist is the reason why many mothers died before I realized that I was the cause of their disease. But, yeah. but in addition, it is his scientific method and his scientific way of thinking that allows him to recognize that. So there's some, it's very, it's very, um, I don't know. It's, it's Yeah, it, it, it is interesting, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's the whole 19th century is a little bit like that, right? You know, with the rise of global circulations, the spread of, you know, steamships, you get at the same time the cholera. Mm. So the spread of knowledge and the spread of diseases is, you know, they are often connected, yeah. Okay, so what happens next is that Ignis Semmelweis starts telling his colleagues, we've been killing women. And, you know, actually, like, a number of, you know, the younger set said, you know, I think he's right. And and it was it was very hard for some of them. And in fact, um, you know, there was there was one doctor uh, named uh, Michaelis who, you know, he had delivered the baby of his own niece and she had developed puerperal fever. And the realization that he was probably responsible for the death of his niece just became too much and he committed suicide. Oh, wow. That's for Semmelweis. He, he immediately said, like, okay, well, um, what could I, knowing this, is there something that I could do at the hospital to stop it? He actually, he started to do these experiments. He was very familiar with the smell of death, obviously, because he was working with cadavers all the time, cutting them open. And, you know, they didn't have particularly good ways of preserving them. So it was a pretty nasty business. Uh, and he was, you know, his sense of smell was very tuned to the smell of a corpse. So he figured, well, you know, if if I can get these cadaver particles off my hands, then maybe then I will be safe as a doctor to go deliver babies. And so he tried things out. You know, he tried out different ways of disinfecting his hands. And he would just sort of basically smell his hands. And and then if the odor of death after an autopsy went away, he'd be like, okay, this, this is good. He settled on basically bleach. He would take some bleach, put it in some water, and create a solution. It wasn't a whole lot of bleach, not enough to burn your skin, but it was enough to burn off that stench and to take care of those cadaver particles. And so Semmelweis was, by now, was in charge of a lot of the births that were happening at Vienna General Hospital. And he just said, okay, new rule, folks. After you do your autopsy and before you deliver a baby, I've got this bowl here. Wash your hands. Disinfect your hands. And, uh, and what happened? He kept track. And um, he basically, like, brought the death rate to pretty much to zero. I mean, he couldn't completely eliminate it, but he got pretty close. There were some months where, like, no women died at all. None. 
And it is here that Ignis Semmelweis reaches his disinfected hands into the present. Because all those PSAs that we're hearing these days about washing your hands, they really begin in this moment with a Hungarian guy realizing that hand washing, the simple act of rubbing your hands together with some soap or bleach, would be the key to the 2,000-year-old mystery of perpetual fever. If only he could have lived to see Carl Zimmer's tweet or see Steph Curry or LeBron James urge their millions of followers to wash their hands, but alas, he could not. He was stuck in his own time. And beyond his own clinic, his idea didn't really catch on. Poor Ignaz Semmelweis. Oh, what a sad story. <laughs> There's a final tragic chapter to this tale, and this one can be told many different ways. Yep, very complicated, and um, a lot of pretty intense controversy. Nancy says Semmelweis's end is something historians still argue about, sometimes quite fiercely. And one version of events is that classic, very familiar science history story where you've got a guy who saw something, had an insight, but then the dogma pushes back. Absolutely. It's the Galileo uh, narrative. Yes. Along those lines, we know that after his big breakthrough, and he collected all kinds of data, he was very scientific in many respects, we know that Ignaz Semmelweis began to write letters. He starts writing to everyone in Europe. He says, I figured this out. You need to institute uh, hand washing and you need to accept my theory. As I mentioned, there were doctors that believed him, the younger doctors mostly. However, <laughs> um, they weren't running the hospitals. They weren't running the medical schools. And so, you know, the the older generation pushed back really hard. Pushed back how? Like, don't tell me what to do, young person kind of thing? Well, imagine, imagine, uh, imagine that you are one of the most respected doctors in obstetrics, like in the world, and you've delivered thousands and thousands of babies. You know what you're doing. And then a 28-year-old who has barely gotten started in the field of medicine says, you are responsible for the deaths of countless women because of these, you know, mysterious things called cadaver particles. Um, it was ridiculous. And then to imply that an educated, upper-class Viennese physician could have been so dirty that they were transmitting this this terrible infection, I think that that is definitely an element at a, at a more subterranean personal level. Don't tell me I'm dirty. Nancy thinks part of it was just that the older doctors were offended. Are you calling me filthy? You know, and, and Semmelweis was, you know, was not very, not terribly diplomatic. Um, he would reply to these doctors, no, I'm not calling you filthy. I'm calling you a murderer. Just being really blunt about it. He, you know, he, he would write letters to doctors, you know, and, and say, just say like, you, sir, been a, a partner in a massacre. <laughs> he starts writing more and more bitter letters and thinks that everyone who disagrees with him must be an evil person. You get the idea that this, um, this may have turned him from that, you know, jovial, popular guy to kind of a monomaniac. And this gets us to the second version of events, that the reason Ignis Semmelweis' big breakthrough didn't break through, at least not in his lifetime, is that it's as much his own fault as anyone else's. Sometimes historians tell his story as an example of what not to do in terms of communicating science. 
He railed against his colleagues, called them names. Certainly not a great way to um, win, a, win a lot of friends. To say Especially because some of them, no, again, according to Daniel Margot C., had legitimate scientific questions like, okay, let's wash hands, fine. But can you explain to us why washing hands works and why every so often it doesn't? First of all, there is the issue that uh, certain mothers still die after the institution of hand washing. Mm. Not all cases of childbirth fever disappear as a result. Physicians wanted to know, could he explain that? Isn't it possible that there's more than one cause here? What are these cadaver particles? Has he ever seen them with a microscope? Uh, If they really are these contaminating agents, shouldn't the babies get sick as much, if not more, than the mothers? And that's not happening. Do we know why? Semmelweis just didn't have the patience to deal with these questions. And the the problem was that um, in... In the early 1860s, he seems to go into a rapid decline. I mean, you can see, like, pictures of him. Um, You know, this is a man in his early 40s, and uh, the pictures just show this man who starts to look like he's in his 60s or 70s. He, He was something terrible was happening. And he... His personality changed in all sorts of ways. I mean, he was already could be a pretty irascible person, but um, he just started acting very strangely. At a meeting where he was supposed to give a report, he would just start reading from a random piece of paper, completely confused. He, you know, he was married and had a family, but he just started like living openly with a prostitute. Something had gone terribly wrong, hmm. and so eventually, um, his his family uh, decided they had to bring him to an, an asylum in Vienna. He was 47. That, that's a pretty startling mental decline. The cause of that decline, again, is something historians debate. People have speculated on it. Um, there had been some theories that it was syphilis. Certainly, syphilis just basically eventually turned your brain into mush. Um, more recently, uh, someone thought it was Alzheimer's disease, you know, very early onset. It looked very much like Alzheimer's. But in any case, um, it, he was institutionalized, but he didn't last more than two weeks. Oh well, he died. He died in in that institution. Yeah. So it seemed it it seems that what happened was that you know he was getting you know just uncontrollable and kind of violent by the time he was institutionalized, and you know <laughs> this was a pretty dark time for people with mental illness. Um, so the guards at the asylum basically just beat him to death. I mean, they, they beat him badly, and then he probably developed an infection in some of those wounds, uh, and that did him in. That's kind of a sad irony. It is, it is ironic, yeah, that he probably died um, uh, of, a, of an infectious disease himself, a very rapid, devastating infection. Let me tell you what I take away from the story. This is maybe a third way to see it. That here was a moment where we, not just Semmelweis, all of us, were trapped in a middle space. A kind of tragic gap. We'd learned a thing, but it wasn't enough. Semmelweis knew that something was making these women sick. He called that something cadaver particles. Didn't use the word bacteria because he didn't know about bacteria. And only a couple years later, Louis Pasteur would come along and say, bacteria, 
that's what those cadaver particles really were. And he would offer the world a comprehensive new idea called germ theory that would change everything. Semmelweis was unfortunately the moment right before that. In many ways, we're in that moment too, now. We know the enemy. We know its shape. We can draw pictures of it. We can track its mutation rate. But we can't tell you why it attacks some people so harshly and others barely. We certainly don't know how to cure it. We just don't know enough yet. But we do know one thing. And it's the same thing that Ignaz Semmelweis taught us back in 1847. Your hands are limousines for pathogens. You deliver them to their next home. The virus that causes COVID-19, this coronavirus, it's got a a membrane around it that's kind of oily, and it breaks up in soap. So all you Mm. need to do is soap your hands for a good 20 seconds, sing happy birthday twice, soap, 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 rinse it off well and dry it off well. And you haven't just like rubbed off viruses, you have actually like split open coronaviruses. They can't harm you, they can't harm anybody. That's very satisfying the way you just described that. (laughs) Washing hands then becomes a kind of an act of war. Yeah. Next time you wash your hands, think about that. That this mundane act was fought for and died for. That there are hundreds of years of life and death and ignorance and knowledge all right there commingling with this open water. has a special way of cutting into the oil. It breaks the oil up into tiny drops and surrounds each Soap lather permits water to penetrate the skin pores and wash away dirt and other foreign matter. Lavis pumice gets them clean with one wash. Did you ever think how much fun it is just to be alive when you feel healthy and well? So if I just wash my hands, I can protect myself? Hands clean the first time. Wash your hands. Wash. Wait a minute. I think you should wash your hands. <laughs> That's it. That's it. Ah. Wash your hands like your life depends on it. Lava, lava, las manos. This just in. Wash your hands. I heard it from my parents. Jimmy, did you wash your hands? Oh, well, someday, Billy, you'll find out why people wash with soap. Big thanks to Carl Zimmer for spending so much time on the phone with me the past few days. And a hat tip to the late Sherman Newland, who wrote a biography of Ignis Semmelweis, great biography called A Doctor's Plague. A lot of the information in this segment was taken from that book. This story was produced with Bethel Hopte and Latif Nasser. I am Jad Abumrad. Thank you for watching. This is Luna Toll, washing her hands in Oakland Park, Kansas. Radio Lab is created by Jad Abumrad with Robert Krolwich and produced by Soren Wheeler. Dylan Keefe is our director of sound design. Susie Lechtenberg is our executive producer. Our staff includes Simon Adler, Becca Bressler, Rachel Kusick, David Gebel, Bethel Hapti, Tracy Hunt, 
Matt Keelty, Annie McEwen, Latif Nasser, Sarah Quarry, Ariane Wack, Pat Walters, and Molly Webster. With help from Shima Olei, with Harry Fortuna, Sarah Sandbach, Melissa O'Donnell, Tad Davis, and Russell Grack. Our fact checker is Michelle Harris.